Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to a special edition of Words Matter. Katie's on assignment. I'm Adam Levine. Joe and I are thrilled to be joined today by former federal prosecutor Mimi Roca. Mimi is currently Pace Law's Distinguished Fellow in Criminal Justice and a Legal Analyst at MSNBC and NBC News. From February 2001 until October 2017, Mimi was an Assistant United States Attorney in the Southern District of New York. As an AUSA, Mimi successfully prosecuted and tried several high-profile organized crime cases. While at the SDNY, Mimi held a number of leadership positions, including Chief of the Organized Crime and Racketeering Unit, as well as Chief of the General Crimes and Narcotics Units. Mimi Roca, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome, Mimi. So tell me about that moment in the fifth grade where you sat and saw the light and said, I want to be a lawyer. And I not only want, do I want to be a lawyer, I want to prosecute bad guys. And not only bad guys, I want to prosecute mob guys and drug guys and all that. <laughs> Well, I actually had several of those moments, though it wasn't in fifth grade. It was much later in life. One of them, to be honest, was watching two different women speak. Linda Fairstein, who was the former head of the sex crimes unit in the Manhattan DA's office. And when I was in college, I saw her speak, and I literally had one of those moments of, I want to do what she does. And I really did start out wanting to be a sex crimes prosecutor. I had people close to me who had been victims of violent sex crimes, and that was what I wanted to do. I actually tried to get a job with her as a paralegal after college, working in her unit, but her paralegals weren't leaving. So I ended up in the as a paralegal in the Appeals Bureau of the Manhattan DA's office, which turned out to be a great experience and exposed me to a broader you know, range of crimes, which I think was a, a good thing. And kind of went from there. And then I decided I wanted to be a federal prosecutor. I worked at the New York City Police Department for a year and just really wanted to get into law enforcement and the you know work on different kinds of cases. And I clerked for a judge named John Gleason, who had tried successfully John Gotti Sr. And I think his passion for organized crime cases rubbed off on me. And, and that was how I got into that field to begin with. I'm going to stay with the fifth grade because it works for me. <laughs> was there a moment in the fifth grade where you thought, you know what? I'm going to be one of the most recognized lawyers in America, <laughs> and I'm going to be on TV every day, and I'm going to get stopped on the street, and people are going to say, go for it, Mimi. Stay after him." Definitely not. And there was not even a moment two years ago when I was working at the U.S. Attorney's Office that I would have thought that would have been me. I only left the U.S. Attorney's Office in October of 2017, and I did not leave with the intention of going on TV or doing any kind of media. But I think like many former prosecutors, federal and state, and starting with one of the most recognizable ones, Pre Parara, who's my friend and was my colleague and my boss, you know, I think it just— we're in a different time. We're in an unusual time where it feels like there is really a need to speak out about the rule of law and what the proper role is of the Department of Justice. And that's no more important than today. <laughs> okay. Now, this is going to be the most important question. Okay. Do you watch Billions? I'm asked that a lot. 
And I think I need to start watching it so I can say yes, but the answer is no, I have to admit. My good friend Brian Koppelman, who created Billions, is before you get back to your office going to have the first four <laughs> seasons uh, delivered to you. Good. Let me, let I will me give ask, it another yeah. shot. Yes. I will. I've, I've, we, the next time you're back, I want to, I want to ask you how realistic okay. it is, but okay. there we go. Some, I guess, breaking news. Have you had breaking news in podcasts? <laughs> the Trump tax story in the New York Times. If you were still sitting in the Southern District of New York, what would your takeaway be? What really stood out for you? I mean, a lot of people are making a big deal about the fact that the guy's the worst businessman in the history. But there were, it seems to me, there were some clues in there about how he sustained that business that as a prosecutor might pique my interest. One thing is this isn't really in sort of my genre of criminal prosecutions, but yet as someone who, you know, worked with people in counterintelligence, it, I think that the main thing that stood out to me actually is where was he getting all this money to put into these businesses to then lose? And what happened after, I think the last date reported on in the report was 19, it was in the 1990s, 1994 right? or 1995. Yeah. So what happened after that? Is he still in huge debt? I mean, this this is a long time ago, as he has pointed out already by tweet. You know, what's the financial state now? I mean, all of these questions about foreign influence that are still just so hugely important and unanswered, I think this highlights even more the need to get to the bottom of that and the need to get his current tax you know, returns and, and, and state of financial affairs. As a criminal matter, you know, obviously we haven't seen the returns themselves. We're, we're looking at reporting on it. But this is the kind of thing that you would use as a prosecutor as a roadmap, right? I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be you look at this and say, Oh, here's tax fraud. Maybe. I mean, there, there, there could be significant fraud in how he, in contrast to the losses, how he over, we've heard that he overinflated income for mortgage purposes. Could be that these weren't real losses. I mean, there's just all sorts of, you know, there's a fine line between sort of being a smart person and getting around paying taxes and committing fraud. And we don't know the answer to that. But I think more importantly, you would use it as a guide to look at how he was conducting his businesses overall. Yeah, I think the debate on this among the political intelligentsia has been either he's a tax cheat or he was a colossally bad business person. Exactly. And this one really seems to lean into the latter, that he was a colossally. And we know for a long time, we know from the last Pulitzer Prize-winning expose in the New York Times said that his father bailed him out at various points. In fact, there's a apocryphal story about him coming in at one point to one of the casinos and buying a million dollars in chips so that they would not uh, violate the regulations. From the counterintelligence part is who replaced Daddy here? Yeah, you know? and, exactly. And we don't know that as far as Bob <laughs> Mueller and other people, but right. those of us sitting in the room don't know that exactly, now. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know that this was really part of the story yesterday, but I think it's an important part of the tax question is – we know from the lawsuit that was filed by the New York State Attorney General, you know, that there was misuse of the Trump charitable organization and that it was being used, according to the Attorney General's lawsuit, for personal purposes. That I mean, that to me is something really worth digging into because I know as a prosecutor, one of the 
crimes that was most sort of frowned upon was, you know, misuse of charitable funds. I mean, when you saw people scamming old people or scamming people who were trying to give money to any kind of charity, those were people you really dug in and went after because for obvious reasons. So Bill Barr now is asserting or telling the president to assert blanket executive privilege. As the great um, Denzel Washington said in Philadelphia, talk to me like I'm a second grader. (laughs) What is the appropriate use of executive privilege? Why is it there? And now the leading part of the question, why are they so misusing it here? Yeah. And or maybe it is they're not, but it, it it sure looks like they are. No, they absolutely are. Executive privilege is less understood, less known, less litigated than, for example, the attorney-client privilege for obvious reasons. I mean, executive privilege gets used less, gets asserted less. But I think with respect to any legal privilege, this is a pretty obvious basic fact to say that you privileges no privilege is absolute. No privilege can be used as a shield, as a blanket, right? It has a defined meaning. And just like a lawyer, remember when Michael Cohen's offices were searched pursuant to a legal search warrant? Um, And Trump said, along with other commentators, that that this was a violation of the attorney-client privilege because he's a lawyer. And Michael Cohen was a good man. Yes, not too, right, before he thought he was cooperating. But the point is, that was obviously an overstatement. And it turned out it was an overstatement, right? Only a minuscule amount of documents that were seized from there were actually covered by the attorney-client privilege because it's not something that you just wave your wand and say, well, you're a lawyer, so therefore everything is covered. Same with executive privilege. Just because you're the president, when you have conversations with someone, doesn't mean those are automatically covered by the executive privilege. They have to be conversations with members of your staff that are part of a deliberative process in decision-making, important policy decision-making. Now, first of all, a lot of the Mueller report is about a time before Trump was even president. He was candidate. In fact— There's no candidate privilege? <laughs> there's absolutely no candidate privilege. So, you know, I think if we if we looked at sort of the time frame within the report, probably— I mean, I'm just throwing a number, but I I don't think it's crazy. 75% of it deals with before he was president. Now, the part that deals with after he was president is, of course, the obstruction part. And that part is going to largely be once he was president. But those conversations that we're talking about, you don't have to be a constitutional or appellate lawyer to know that those conversations between, for example, Trump and McGahn— about whether to shut down the Mueller investigation, those are not an important policymaking decision. No, it's actually policy to obstruct justice, Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and while there may not be an explicit crime-fraud exception with respe- respect to executive privilege the way there is with the attorney-client privilege, the courts look at the balance. Are we talking here about something that could possibly have been a criminal act? And that, that was true in Nixon, right? I mean, that's why they— ruled that the tapes and et cetera should be handed over. And that would be true here. And so I think ultimately, as a legal matter, this has no merit. And certainly, it sort of exposes just the politics of this and how Barr is using the privilege in a political way to say the whole report is covered. Right. And haven't they already waived 
executive yes. privilege? And people start with waiver, and <laughs> I try to say, wait, let's talk about the merits first, yep. because I think some people have an inherent reaction to waiver of, well, is that really fair? And So, first of all, yes, waiver is a very established principle under the law, but I li- that's why I like to talk about the merits first. But as a matter of waiver and fairness, of course it's waived. You could maybe still argue waiver once it was given over when it was given to Mueller because he's still within the executive branch. But once the report was released without any objection on executive privilege into the public arena outside the executive branch, I do not understand how you could have any claim that it is not waived, any legitimate claim. And with respect to, for example, Mueller testifying, again, same thing. He's a prosecutor. He's not somebody with whom Trump was having deliberative discussions. So there's just no, there's no, there's really no legal basis for this. And they're they're, they're using it as a shield. There's no better way to put it, I think. So practically, how long can they tie this up in the courts? I think the assumption is that it would take a long time. And that's part of why Democrats keep trying to negotiate and get it some other way, because who wants to drag this out for years? I saw actually Jill Weinbanks put something out yesterday on Twitter saying, you know, based on her experience, it it really wouldn't take that long. And she gave some actually specific dates of when they requested certain materials and when they got it during Nixon. We know that courts can be slow, but we also know they can expedite and they do expedite. And there are processes for that when things are of an urgent nature. And this would qualify as urgent. And do courts generally, when they see something that's blatantly a political move, which this is, do they take that into consideration in how they calendar and how they expedite? They wouldn't necessarily use that terminology, mm-hmm. but they would they would use the terminology, this is a matter of utmost you know, national importance, right? We're talking about, at, at core, we're still talking about the security of our elections, and we've got an election coming up in 2020, and a lot of this goes to that. At core, we're talking about whether the president committed criminal acts, whether you call, you know, criminal under impeachment standards or under prosecution standards. Those are matters that need to be decided quickly. So I really do think no matter what judge, I think no matter what party any particular judge was nominated by, they would both see this as something to be decided urgently, and I think we'll decide it on the law. That doesn't mean Democrats will get every single thing they want, but we're not even close now. It means that Republicans and Barr will not be able to do these blanket stonewalling and and obstruction, really. Right. When you say that it can be expedited, would this be something that could go immediately to the circuit court or even to the Supreme Court because it's a congressional versus executive dispute, or does this start off like many cases, at the district level and then work its way up? I I have to brush up on my procedure, and I've talked about this with some lawyers. I think there are avenues for direct appeal to the circuit courts. But even if you're going to a district court, I mean, I really do think this could be briefed, argued, and decided within a couple of weeks. We've already been negotiating for a couple of weeks. I'm not saying these are easy, and and, and, we're lumping them all together. It depends which thing we're talking about and, and how you parse it. Some of them are more complicated than others. But, for example, and I think Democrats should lead with their strongest arguments. So I actually don't think that going to court first on give us the unredacted Mueller report is their best argument. I think their strongest argument is Mueller testifying. I don't see any legal basis for that to be prevented, any nor have I heard one articulated, right? Like, they at least articulate this executive privilege, grand jury, you know, when it comes to the report, when it comes to McGahn. Again, I don't think most of those arguments are meritorious or, or, or legitimate, 
but I understand that they can articulate the arguments. As to Mueller testifying, I've yet to even hear anybody articulate why, which is why so far it's only been Trump who has said Mueller shouldn't testify, but we're already hearing rumblings now. Is Barr going to back him up on that? I mean, on what basis? And that, to me, would be one of the most powerful things Democrats could get quickly and would have a great impact, you know, and let the rest follow. Yeah, and it's worth remembering that Barr testifying before Congress said he had no problem with Mueller testifying, that Trump said he was going to leave it up to his attorney general and then changed his mind via tweet. Uh, It's, you know, it's the way innocent people act. Um, They they keep their stories straight. They never trip themselves up. And we may come back to that. Let's talk a little bit about this letter. You were part of uh, organizing a letter. And just for background for people who haven't seen it, it's now 700 prosecutors, former DOJ officials, Democrats and Republicans, who have basically made the case that if the president wasn't the president, a very strong case, not even a close call, would be made for indicting him for obstruction of justice. Talk a little bit about how this came together and why. There were a lot of former prosecutors out there who were writing articles, who were on TV. Sally Yates had come out and said it recently. By the time she said it, I think most of the former prosecutors were like, yeah, exactly. You know, this idea that if it were not for the OLC memo, this would be a prosecutable case. Absolutely. This would be a case you would indict as a prosecutor, no matter what your party. And this is a case that you would very likely win. I've heard some prosecutors say, absolutely, you would win at a trial. I never say absolutely. There's always a litigation risk. And particularly when you're talking about the possibility of jury nullification with someone like Trump. But it is absolutely a winnable case. And more importantly, a case that should be charged. When I was a prosecutor, and so many of of us have talked about this, it was really one of the most important types of cases you could prosecute were obstruction of justice cases. Because I cannot tell you how many cases we weren't able to make important gang cases, terrorism cases, organized crime cases, fraud cases, because people successfully obstructed justice or tried to obstruct justice and made the job so much harder. And so if you let those go unaddressed, that kind of conduct, that kind of behavior, you're really jeopardizing the entire sort of basis of our criminal justice system. And, you know, that's, as a, as a prosecutor, as someone in law enforcement, that's obviously a scary thought and something you want to prevent. So, and particularly with someone like the president, who should be, forget about cooperative with an investigation, which I know he says he was, but in reality, he was not because he wouldn't even sit down for an interview for one. But particularly with someone like that, who should have such respect for the law and is why, at the end of the day, other high profile elected officials like Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, and others eventually did sit down. Whether they did it in exactly the way that people would have wanted or not, it was too much to say, no, I, as, you know, the the sort of head of the executive branch, am going to just refuse to cooperate. And George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. There you Dick, go. Something exactly. Dick Cheney could yeah. manage to do. Yeah. No, it's – it's they they very simply said, however uncomfortable, I'm not above the law. Exactly. And, and that's, that's what Trump – Exactly. Sorry. I mean, the, the letter makes clear that from the former prosecutors that this – you don't think this is a close call – and it is the Justice Department's regulation on not indicting a sitting president that is the obstacle here. You kind of divide this up into three categories and just you know, very briefly you yeah. know, make the case for each of these. The first is the president's efforts to fire Mueller and to falsify evidence about that effort. We know the most well-known at this point, and I think damning part of that, is his 
ability or his attempts, rather, to try and get through McGahn to fire Mueller. You know, I think that if you look at the actual conduct here, it's the act of doing it and then the act of trying to cover it up that also speaks to what, we, you know, consciousness of guilt, right? I mean, he's now trying to say, I didn't do that. I didn't give that instruction. I didn't mean fire. I mean, you you can parse it, right? And sure, you can you can raise defenses. But the actual overall impression of what he was trying to do and when you then look at the fact that he even suggested to McGahn to write a letter to the file saying that he hadn't tried to get McGahn to fire Mueller, that is really damning. I mean, that is something a prosecutor in an ordinary case, if someone tried to get someone else to falsify a letter, a letter contradicting what had just happened, to cover it up. It's a cover-up on top of a cover-up. And it's, it's consciousness of guilt. It shows that he knew it was wrong at the time. I just want to say one quick thing, which is, of course, this case has no exact parallel. We're talking about the president in his interactions with McGahn or his interactions with, with other people, you know, with Priebus. But what is not unfamiliar, what is, I think, so similar and, and why so many prosecutors look at this and say this is chargeable, is the idea of a person in a position of power, whatever that position may be, and trying to use that power to interfere in an investigation. So no one's going to use it exactly like the president can. No one's in exactly that position. But mob bosses are in positions of power, and they use people under them all the time to try and interfere in investigations. Heads of corporations, financial executives, they tell people to destroy emails. They ask people to write exculpatory email, fake exculpatory emails. They tell people to lie without necessarily telling them directly to lie. They give a wink and a nod of, you know what the story is. And then I'm sort of jumping ahead to, to one of the, the next categories. Yeah. I, think, I think those things, you know, fall within the, the first two categories. We're talking about the efforts to fire Mueller and then the efforts to limit the investigation by trying to get Sessions to unrecuse himself, trying to say— This investigation should be about future elections, not this election. I mean, it's just trying to stop this investigation from going into not just him, but into what Russia did. And I think that's important to keep in mind. It's not just about him. He's trying to hide what Russia did. And then the third category, which in some ways is the most familiar, I think, is the attempted witness tampering. I saw that so many times in so many different ways. Here, again, it's very unique how Trump did it because he was in this position that had this very unique power of offering a pardon to someone. And so when Cohen was in legal trouble, when Manafort was in legal trouble, to use the two most obvious examples, he both dangled, he hung, he shouted the, you know, without using the exact words, the idea that he would take care of them at the end of the day if they didn't cooperate. And that's why when Cohen ultimately did cooperate or, you know, somewhat successfully and somewhat unsuccessfully, Trump turned on him and then turned to another familiar tactic of intimidation, attempted intimidation. I mean, he tweeted about his family, about his father-in-law the night before Cohen was supposed to testify in Congress. At the time, I Which mean, we established he had seen the movie The Godfather. Exactly. The Godfather 2. I mean, the Godfather 2. Right out of the playbook. Yeah. But all of these things, I mean, that's why I think prosecutors who look at this 
objectively say it's not even a close call. It's not that we've seen this exact conduct. You can't. But this is a familiar tactic of people who have power trying to use it, trying to get people not to cooperate against them, trying to control as much as you can an investigation. The most similar conduct I could think of would be if you had a prosecutor, actually, or someone in law enforcement who tried to obstruct a case, an investigation. And those cases have been prosecuted, too. Again, not exactly the same, but someone who has a unique form of power and tries to destroy evidence, get rid of evidence, whether it's against them or maybe a CI who they're protecting, a confidential informant. So not a close call, but yet, honestly, a hard letter to write because I think that it's hard for people who used to work for the Department of Justice to come out and say, here's our opinion on a case that we're not prosecuting. We know that's not an average thing to do. That's not an everyday thing. And this goes to your point of why I think it's powerful and and surprising, but but not unexpected, that so many prosecutors, former prosecutors, signed on to it. This is not something people do lightly. Pe- these people all have careers. Many of them work in law firms. Some of them who are who are judges, you know, can't sign. I mean, there's, there's a whole category of people yeah. that couldn't sign on. But I think it's remarkable, and it's grown from 340 on the day it came out to over 700. Yeah, I would imagine that many of these people are going to have business in front of the Department of Justice, and their name is going to be on this. Let me, And that that is an act of, of courage. Is there any downside as you look at this to career prosecutors injecting themselves in this way? Yes. I mean, you know, part of why, as we said at the beginning, a lot of us are doing this is to try to – is to speak out about what we see as the politicalization of the Department of Justice and and the way that Trump has stepped into the the world of law enforcement in a way that you know really is unprecedented and he shouldn't. So yes, there is that risk of people saying, "Oh, well these are all just a bunch of people who probably angry democrats." Angry democrats, more angry democrats, so they must be friends with the people on the Mueller team. But I think that the counterside, the counterweight to that is so important because what what really was the tipping point for me personally, and I can't speak for everyone else, was when I started hearing quotes from anonymous DOJ sources, you know, I saw in, in, in one article and then Barr basically said it, that this is not a prosecutable case. They're basically saying – yeah, that thing that Mueller wrote about obstruction, no obstruction, no one would prosecute this, nothing to see here. And it is just so false that you can't let that go unaddressed from a professional perspective. You know, when I was a prosecutor, I actually was not registered as a Democrat in the entire time I was a federal prosecutor. And because I wanted to have the ability to say that I was unregistered, that I was not you know, did I vote Democrat most of the time? Probably, you know, but it, but it, it prohibited me from you know doing certain things like voting in certain primaries. But I, I thought it was important. I know a lot of other federal prosecutors who, who did that because you really try to be as objective as possible. I would have happily <laughs> prosecuted Democrats or Republicans if they were good and real and important cases to bring. And I think most of the people who signed that letter, you know, that's true of. One of the arguments that I've heard out there is, well— He attempted in a lot of places, but he wasn't successful. His ineptitude, his ineffectiveness makes him not a criminal. How do you respond to that? First and foremost, I will say I don't think that's right. I think that his 
communications with Manafort were successful. I mean, we know that Manafort did this whole pretend cooperation thing. One of the prosecutors said in court that they spent 50 hours, I think, with Manafort, with him lying to them. That, you know, would Manafort have cooperated but for Trump sort of communicating with him while he was trying to cooperate, finding out information, offering him basically without directly offering a pardon. We don't know for sure, but it seems to me that there's a very good chance that that had an impact. It also may have very much delayed Cohen cooperating. I mean, Cohen now talks about the fact that he felt he could be taken care of until he didn't. And even Mueller spoke in the report about hurdles that he faced and why he didn't feel he got and all of the information he would have wanted to get. That's not all attributable to Trump, but I think it, 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 there are some examples of it that you can directly attribute to him. But more importantly, there are legions, I mean hundreds, of small and big cases that the Department of Justice under Republican and Democratic administrations have prosecuted where there was no underlying crime. Scooter Libby is one of the more high-profile ones, Martha Stewart— But there are, I mean, just so many that people wouldn't know about, where people tried to obstruct justice in the kind of cases I was talking about before, gang cases, mob cases. And you prosecute those because you need to protect the process and the system. If you wait for cases where there is an underlying crime that is provable, then you're only ever going to prosecute people who fail at obstructing justice. And that makes no sense. The incentive then is for people to be really good at obstructing justice, because if they're really good at it, you never prove the underlying crime. Well, then you can't prove obstruction. That just turns the whole point of the statute on its head. It makes absolutely no sense. You want to be able to prosecute this crime because it is attempted. It's prosecuting the 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 endeavor to obstruct. That is what the word of the statute and and, and its purpose. You talk about underlying crime, and again, people saying there's no underlying crime. Was Mueller hampered by the fact or is that argument strengthened by the fact that because his purview was so narrow, there might have been underlying crimes, for example, the Michael Cohen in the Southern District on the campaign. Is that one of the elements that makes this unusual? And is is it a myth that there's no underlying crime or maybe we don't know that there's underlying crimes? Just talk about that for a second. I mean, you're right. It, it, it's a lot more complicated than just, well, no underlying crime was charged here. Because what matters here is, was he trying to obstruct an investigation? And so the idea, I guess, that Barr is saying is, well, if there was no if he, there was no underlying crime to be prosecuted and Trump knew that, then why would he try to obstruct it? So he had no intent. But of course, he didn't know that there was no underlying crime to be charged because, one, Mueller came pretty close on certain areas. I mean, the most obvious example is this possible campaign finance charge that it looks like could have been brought against Don Jr. and maybe others about the Trump Tower meeting and, you know, taking the meeting with the Russians to possibly accept emails about Hillary Clinton. That wasn't prosecuted on a pretty narrow basis, even according to Mueller, right? It was, well, I can't prove that he had that high heightened intent. That's just one example. More broadly, and and there's no way Trump could have, or Kushner or Donald Trump Jr. could have known that when this started. They knew they did things that sure smelled like crimes. And so their effort to obstruct them doesn't matter whether a prosecutor ultimately could meet those very specific elements of the crime under a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Second of all, as you say, Mueller was only looking at a very narrow range of crimes having to do with the election, 
and Russia, really. We know he referred out all of these other cases. We know about some of them. The Southern District with respect to Michael Cohen, the campaign finance, the inaugural committee, all of those are things that Trump and people around him could have been thinking, whoa, once they start looking at me, they are going to find this stuff. And lastly, I would say, I still think that really what they were trying to do also is to stop the investigation into what Russia did. That is the crime, right? Russia, we know, committed a crime here. They, they, you can call it an attack. You can call it, I mean, there are actual Russians charged with that. Why Trump wanted to stop that? I mean, we know he doesn't want us to find out about it because he's still denying it happened. He still won't admit it happened. So to say that he had no motive and, and intent to stop this investigation is literally, I think, crazy. <laughs> Put on your historian hat. Will historians look back at this week and say this is where we reached a constitutional crisis? I think so. I mean, if we hadn't already been there, I think when you now have the head of the Department of Justice, and and this started really, you know, weeks ago, really from the moment of the rollout of the Mueller report, became even clearer with Barr's testimony. You have the person who's supposed to be head of the Justice Department acting as the president's white-collar criminal defense attorney. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. He he makes defenses, factual defenses for him. He makes legal arguments for him. He spins things for him. And now he's preventing, in this very way-too-broad way, documents, information, testimony, and evidence from getting to another branch, co-equal branch of government, with really almost no basis in the law. I think we're there. We are at it. And the question is, what are they going to do about it? I think we could spend many, many hours beating up on a bar. I, I want to <laughs> shift this, though, a little bit and turn to Bob Mueller and your assessment of his job. My old colleague, David Kendall, wrote an op-ed in The Washington Post a couple of days ago. And I'll just, let me just read one. He, he, go, he starts by saying Bob Mueller is a man of great integrity. But in paragraph two, he shifts very quickly and jarringly by saying, but the failure to draw any conclusion on whether the president obstructed justice was a massive dereliction of the special counsel's duty and the report's explanation of this failure is both incoherent and illogical. Later in the letter, he basically says, Mueller flinched. David is very careful with his words. There were a million things I wanted to say when we were working together, and his opening answer was always no, and his closing answer was hell no. Give me a basic sense of how Mueller handled the ultimate disposition of the report and the recommendation. Look, I think it's easy to sit here now, uh, you know, lawyers, prosecutors, pundits, people— to say Mueller should have done this. Mueller should have made his decision. And I understand that David Kendall is not someone who says that easily. So I, I you know, I take it seriously. But, but here's what I think. I think that Mueller tried to be perhaps overly fair. <laughs> if he has a fault, it was being fair to a fault. It was trying to be as non-political as absolutely possible. He saw this as a matter, I cannot, under this policy, indict the president. I am not going to accuse him of a crime that he then does not have the criminal justice process to basically exonerate himself through. Be cross-examined. 
I think, if you read between the lines, and again, this goes to part of why I think so many lawyers signed the letter, the former prosecutor signed the letter we were talking about. I think if you read between the lines, it is clear what Mueller thought. And he came as close to saying it without saying it. He said, if I could say that he did nothing wrong, I would say that. This does not accuse him of a crime, but it does not exonerate. I mean, he used a lot of words to say something that many other people would have said more directly. Other special counsels would have said it more directly. And a lot of people wish he had said it more directly. But at the end of the day, I think it is a good thing that Mueller stayed where he stayed because they're doing it. They are trying to accuse him still of being on a witch hunt. And, you know, they'll they'll forever have their attacks, but they have no credibility. Mueller did not let himself get pulled into that. And I think by staying where he did and, and bending over backwards to have this fair result of I'm laying out the facts, you can make the decision, but I am not going to make that accusation here in this, this arena, it will look the, like the right thing to have done way down the road. I also do think he probably, I don't know if I want to use the word overestimate or underestimated his friend Bill Barr. I would be surprised, and we may never know this, but I would be surprised if he thought Barr was then going to come in and do what he did, which is say, well, maybe a president can't be indicted, but I can sure say that I don't think he committed a crime, which is, of course, not consistent with the OLC he, policy. He, he wasn't aware, like John Mitchell, he was on the president's reelection team, the creep team. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I don't love it. I'm not happy with it. I wish wish Mueller had been clearer, but I understand why he did it. And I think way down the road, it will serve the rule of law and Department of Justice well that he stayed out of it. So my next question, kind of think of it as I'm a senator and we're in a hearing and I'm going to make a statement. There really isn't a question, so you don't have to respond. (laughs) The unintended consequences of Mueller's approach was it allowed the White House to shape the narrative over the first couple of weeks. Total exoneration, you know, the president is innocent of everything. And, and you know, in some respects, yeah, I don't know what other strategy they had available, what they deliberated, but I know they believed that they were very smart and got something done. Um, Adam and I have talked about this. It's a little painful for him, but I'm in a different place. I, I'm in this is mission accomplished too, which is basically by claiming total exoneration Every piece of evidence that con- you know contradicts total exoneration becomes more important and more about. And this is the long game here. And the long game. If this is a if this is a Shakespearean play, we're about to get to the third act, and the third act, the, the climax, is Bob Mueller on the hill uh, talking about what he really thinks. There's lots of people in my business of communications and political communications that are debating with their strategy. But I I take the long view and believe that they've undermined their position. There's no one there who can speak credibly on this anymore. And they would have been much stronger. I've said this over and over again. They needed Barr to be seen as the fair arbiter. uh, And they blew that. And all Trump had to do, all he had to do that day was to say, hey, listen, I'm glad that They said I didn't commit a crime. I never committed a crime. I wouldn't have done that. But boy, a crime was committed against us, and here's what I'm going to do about it. And then be a little humble. That would have been an excellent response. (laughs) And I think that would have worked a lot better than what they did do. And that's my question. How did I do as a senator asking a question? Like, 
Well, Senator, yeah. I'll take your question. First of all, I, you know, I think Trump would have been better advised by that because that would have been a, a really good response for so many reasons, both in the short term and in the long term, as you say, because that was his best day for him when he said, I, I was exonerated, no collusion, no obstruction. And it could only really go down from there. But it also was a successful tactic, as you say, to, to delay and to let the narrative come out. Although I, I think the media and, and the Democrats, people have done a good job of clarifying that, wait, no, it's not quite that simple. You can, it's hard to put the toothpaste back, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I, I think more people than not get that. I still think, and, and the numbers bear this out, that more people than not have not read the Mueller report. And three percent, I think, was the yeah. latest poll. So, and and they're not going to. It's long. It's hard to read. I wish people would read at least the executive summaries. There's all sorts of talk about getting celebrities to read it and do oral readings. Maybe it will become better known. But Bob Mueller testifying is the best way to get the information that is in the report to the public. Yeah, and so even if he does nothing else yeah. other than restate some of the main conclusions of the report, which I think, by the way, is a, pretty much what he's going to be willing to do. That would be invaluable. I mean, this is the book to the movie, and Bob Mueller's the star, and perhaps Don McGahn uh, is the star, and perhaps, perhaps, you know, many other. Switching gears again a little bit, I'm interested if you can put your SDNY hat back on. What are they up to? I wish I knew. (laughs) (laughs) Having been there for a long time, what do you think they're up to? I don't want to raise expectations. I think that's very dangerous. I think it was done probably too much about Mueller. And then when you know people maybe didn't see what they thought they were going to see, they then said, oh, the Southern District is going to indict him. I don't think the Southern District is going to indict Trump, first of all. I will say that because I have heard some people say that the Southern District is so independent, they will just you know forget the OLC memo. Uh, that's not going to happen under any U.S. attorney, not just And if they Jeff did, Burman. we know the attorney general would overrule them. Right, right. But I mean, even if they tried, I mean, could they, if they had a serious enough crime, could they go and say, I think it should be reconsidered? Maybe. But even that, I think Mueller, it sounds like, didn't even do that. So I I don't expect them to do that. I think that they will investigate. In other words, they will keep following it. I am confident that if the evidence of crimes is there and it is good, reliable evidence, it will not be stopped because we have a Republican administration. I, I, I have confidence that they will try to bring those charges now. I would have said a couple of weeks ago that even Bill Barr wouldn't stand in the way of that. I'm not as confident of that anymore. I think, though, that that will get out. If that is where it leads, I do believe that it would somehow get out. I don't know exactly how. I can't tell you. But I do believe that the line career prosecutors there would feel so betrayed by that if they thought they had a real case to bring, putting politics aside, and were stopped for political reasons. People would find out about it. People know who you are now. You're on TV a lot, and I'm sure you get stopped. And, you know, most people tell you you're great. You probably have an occasional person who doesn't. <laughs> uh, I've had that experience yes. in my life. One of the things that that has struck me is, you know, back during the Clinton impeachment, because I, I, I still do kind of have my head in 1998 and how that all played out. And I tweeted about this, and I used you as an example. Last time, it was a bunch of white men who were commenting on legal issues. There's been a sea change. What does this mean for women and people of color that, you know, uh, that it's not just a bunch of white men telling us what the law is? That's been one of the most rewarding thing, parts of doing the TV thing. 
particularly during the Kavanaugh hearings, I cannot tell you the number of women who tweeted at me, wrote me emails, came up to me at, I mean, to this day and say, with tears in their eyes, some of them, that it meant the world to them to have a woman sitting there during the hearings talking in the way that, I mean, it's not impossible for a man to talk, but they felt like they had a voice because there was a woman saying things that they were thinking. And of course, that's because with, for example, you know, the the Kavanaugh hearings, so many women have had so many experiences like that not exactly like Dr. Ford's, but experiences that were upsetting that they never talked about, that they never told anyone until much later because they didn't feel they could or they didn't feel comfortable or no one would believe them. And so having, you know, it wasn't even about being a lawyer at that point, but just having a woman talk about that who had a a position, you know, where I, I was on TV and could say it, I think really was meaningful. And so that to me meant a lot. I had, I've had mothers, write me emails about their daughters being inspired now to go to law school. As a woman, it has been very rewarding to get that kind of feedback from other women. One of the reasons I was inspired to become a prosecutor was seeing Linda Fairstein speak, and it was partly just her command of what she was talking about and her authority, and it it was very inspiring when I saw what Anita Hill went through. That inspired me as well. And so to then be commenting on the Kavanaugh hearings was was very meaningful. I can't think of a better way to end except to say, Mimi, thanks for joining us. Thank it's you. been a fa- fascinating me. conversation. Thanks so much. Great to have you here. Thanks. Thank you. So, Joe, at this point in the show, we like to find out what else is on your mind. The big story so far this week, it's tough in a week like this to call one of them big, is the New York Times exhaustive investigation of Donald Trump's uh, taxes, tax return, tax information from 1985 to 1994. Talk about that, Joe, in terms of debunking this myth that was built first himself through his book, then with the help of Mr. Burnett and others on The Apprentice of Donald Trump being the successful businessman. Yeah, listen, first, kudos to the New York Times for getting this information. Congress can't get it. New York State can't get it. A couple of dogged New York Times reporters got it, and they, they should be congratulated for that. In many ways, it's kind of settled, I think, the one of the great debates about Trump through this process. And, and, you know, one story was Donald Trump was a very rich man, and he got very rich because he was an incredible tax cheat. And he didn't pay any taxes, and he violated every tax law that was out there. There was another one that said that Donald Trump was actually one of the worst business people in the history of the country. I got a little insight into this from a couple of areas through my wife's family. Her aunt and uncle work in Atlantic City. One uh, ran a casino and one did advertising for casinos. And they gave me, just over the kitchen table, a lot of insight into how Trump took these very valuable properties, over-leveraged them and drove them into the ground. And, you know, on top of that, never paid his bills. So I I was always kind of leaning toward that side of bad business. I think this story ends the debate. He clearly is one of the worst business people. He shouldn't be compared to Bill Gates or Sergey Brin or Mark Zuckerberg. He should be compared to Bernie Madoff. This is a guy who for 40 years has been doing the long con And 
he's been taking other people's money and through disastrous business decisions, losing it. I mean, it's Bernie Madoff 2.0. And I think that is incredibly embarrassing for Donald Trump. I think that's why he's fighting so hard. Politically, it blows up the myth of this outsider who is a self-made billionaire who just was smarter than everybody else at every turn. Now, is this going to turn a bunch of Trumpies into anti-Trumpies? Probably not. But it's very difficult for him to talk about how his business experience helps him in the White House. And he now has a record of mismanaging the White House in the same way he's mismanaged his business. And, you know, when I look at this and, you know, the New York Times says over 10 years he lost over a billion dollars. Now he's up the ante. His tax cut is costing the American people a trillion dollars a year. So, you know, I guess that's moving on up for for Donald (laughs) Trump. I've heard of failing up. I've heard of, you know, failing sideways. This guy has made failure a life experience and a marketing goldmine because he's never succeeded at anything, it appears, except for fooling people. And Michael Cohen was right when he sat before Congress under oath and said, Donald Trump is a con man and Donald Trump is a cheat. One of the things we learned from that New York Times story was that counter to what Donald Trump has been telling everybody for 40 years, it wasn't just a million-dollar loan from his father. Our friend Tim O'Brien at Bloomberg debunked that. But I think we got an insight that we hadn't had before to the extent of his father being, for lack of a better way of putting it, his sugar daddy. In terms of the investigation going forward into today, how is that relevant and does it open up questions that need to be answered. It it is incredibly relevant from the counterintelligence point of view. And that's what we got very little of in the Mueller report. We know now from previous New York Times reporting that won a Pulitzer Prize, the same set of reporters, that Fred Trump was the guy who kept bailing out his son. There's one story that one casino was so badly run that Fred Trump had to come in one day and buy a million dollars of chips so that they wouldn't be you know, they wouldn't violate the casino board uh, regulations. And he came in and bought a million dollars and bailed his, literally bailed his little boy out at the casino. That's what we know of. So we know that. Here's where it gets really interesting. Fred Trump left us, was no longer able to bail out his son. So who was bailing out Donald Trump from, you know, the mid-90s on? And that's where you get into why were banks having been burned so many times Deutsche Bank, the most important. Why were they still loaning him money? Where was his cash flow coming from? Because his businesses were failing. Everybody thought that on the Trump is beholden to Russians, that was dead as far as the Mueller report. Mueller didn't say that. Mueller answered a very specific question about whether the campaign criminally conspired with the Russians to influence the election. He did not get into whether Donald Trump was bailed out in a way that he became beholden to a foreign entity, the Russians, the Saudis, whoever. That's not answered yet. And what the New York Times story does is that puts it front and center because – and it legitimizes what Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler – And the Democrats are trying to find out. Without this New York Times story, another way to put it is, I think a lot of people would look at the the Congress 
looking into his family finances as overreach. But if you read this New York Times story, now you need an answer. Now we need to know you ran your business into the ground for 10 years and daddy bailed you out. Same guy's running his business this next 10 years. It isn't like all of a sudden he went back to school and learned something. And we know he had a successful TV show, but that does not make you worth $10 billion. Who was funding him? Who was bailing him out? And at what price? Maybe we'll find out. Another thing that happened this week, Joe, is your old friend Ken Starr is back. He's never really left us. But he had some comments which I will let you characterize and discuss how you feel about his reading of the uh, Mueller investigation. Well, when I read them, my head exploded. So it took me a little while to put all the pieces back together. But he was he's, he's now signed a deal with Fox News. I, I had an encounter with him for about 45 minutes on CNN which led him to become an exclusive guest on Fox News <laughs> and he, he's, you know, and, and make the deal that he'd never go on another legitimate television show again. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. He said something to the effect of Mueller put too many details in his report and it was prosecutorial overkill. That's about when my head exploded. Bob Mueller did a 448-page report, which dealt with a foreign adversary attacking our election system and the president of the United States and his camp potentially conspiring with them to undermine our elections. And then a massive effort to obstruct justice to look into that in 448 pages. Ken Starr spent thousands of pages looking at an inappropriate relationship between the president of the United States and a White House intern. We all know from the contemporary writings of the time that Ken Starr and Brett Kavanaugh, who now sits on the Supreme Court, couldn't get enough of the sex. I'm not excusing the president of the United States, but I'll tell you, the last thing I'm going to do is take a lecture on overkill from a bunch of tight-ass Republican wingnuts. I don't know that he ever had any credibility, but he's just become a running joke. Bob Mueller, also a Republican, not a wingnut, limited himself in that investigation. And you addressed this in your last uh, in the last topic, but it wasn't. It couldn't just be Russia and Donald Trump, and it couldn't just be the 2016 election and Donald Trump. It had to be Donald Trump, Russia, and the 2016 election in that narrow scope. And like you said, Ken Starr went way outside the scope. I remind people, a land deal in Arkansas in the 1980s somehow led there. For Ken Starr to be lecturing Bob Mueller... Overreach. uh, On overreach and overkill and too many details. There isn't a term for it. Well, there is one. He's full of shit. And finally, Joe, we touched on this recently, but your president, my president, others. Presidents have awarded athletes the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Most times it is when that athlete has retired and finished his or her career. Talk a little bit about what we saw in the Rose Garden on Monday with Tiger Woods and that photo op with Donald Trump. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting story. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and I I think I talked about how I was conflicted, that on one level I thought, here's a guy who— is guilty of some really bad behavior as an athlete, but hardly a role model for many of the things. And then I remember reflecting on, well, if you widen the lens a little bit, he is a role model for a lot of people. You know, there are a lot of African-Americans and mixed-race people who 
looked at Tiger Woods and said, I can play golf too, or I can, if I work hard enough, if I have his worth ethic. So while it was debatable, I sort of came down on the side of if the president wants to give him the Medal of Freedom, you know, go for it because there, there, there was enough there. There was a New York Times story that raised some questions about, you know, Tiger Woods and the president are in business together, developing golf courses, and that raised some hackles. You know, again, you know, I think we're all numb to the corruption of Donald Trump. So, you know, I, that that didn't spoil it for me. What spoiled it for me was Donald Trump. Big surprise. He has He's awarding the Medal of Freedom to Tiger Woods, and all he talks about is golf. And what a great golfer he is. And he doesn't even recognize that all of the other things he's done as far as his foundation, as far as sending a message to Americans. Donald Trump has has been quoted in the past as saying that golf is a game that the rich should be played. It should only be played, and this is all in Rick Riley's book, should be played at exclusive country clubs and public golf courses are an abomination. The, you know, the lower classes shouldn't be playing. And Tiger Woods is the example of someone who's saying, that's wrong. It should be. But all Donald Trump could do was talk about, you know, what a great golfer he was. And I think he did a huge disservice to Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods at one point looked a little bit like Rod Rosenstein in, in the press conference, as in, you know, aren't you going to mention, like, all the good I've done? And as usual, you know, it's it's almost, you know, it is the most predictable thing in the world. Even a good idea can be ruined by Donald Trump and probably will be. Joe, thank you as always. We will be back next week, and I know you will be too with, uh, with more thoughts. With more thoughts and probably still a little pissed off at Trump. There you go. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.